Hello, this is the Tech... No, it's not Tech Southwest Podcast, the Southwest Tech Daily Podcast. Yeah. Hello, this is the Southwest Tech Daily Podcast. I'm Robert Hillier and my co-host is Fiyaza Khan. So, in the podcast today, we are talking to Roger Osorio. He has written a book called The Journey to Reinvention. Roger is a coach and a teacher and... He's done so many amazing things in his life. I absolutely love him, by the way. What's his, just... what's his Southwest connection? It's important that you tell people how you met him. Well, why. so he came over for the Tech Stars weekend at Falmouth University. And I went to interview him for this podcast. And he was absolutely amazing. And we really hit it off. I just loved him. And so now I'm just going to get him on the podcast all the time. Also, he lives in New Jersey, and I think I need a New Jersey friend. Yes, obviously, the more American friends you can have, the better, because it makes uh, New York trips a lot cheaper if people, <laughs> if people offer you their spare rooms or their flats or, you know, yeah. their, That's... their cars to sleep in, because it's increasingly common over there. So here's a little teaser from Roger. He'll be on after our next guest, but here's a little teaser from Roger for now. There is an urgency here. I mean, you really can't afford to spend another day living a life that's not going after what you want. He gives you something to think about, doesn't he? Yeah, obviously lots of people offer self-help and guides to life and life coaching, but with so many of them, I think you have to find someone who fits you, because you know, sometimes they're inspiring, sometimes they can be quite annoying, and I think you have to find the people who work for you, and I think you found someone who does work for you, doesn't it? You do seem to find him an in, an inspiring person. Yep, and his book came out earlier this week on the 27th of September, so it's out now. I actually downloaded my version on Kindle, and I think the next time I meet Roger, I might actually take a paperback version and get him to sign it, because how cool would that be? Yeah, it's a really good book, uh, The Journey to Reinvention, and it's all about how to live your life aligned with your values. It's a good read. I've just started, so but we'll come back to Roger in a bit. For now, let's go to our interview with an amazing human being. Her name is Elizabeth Chandler, and she's one of the founders of the Good Robot Company. Um, she's also a second year University of Exeter student, but absolutely love her. I, we totally hit it off. We couldn't stop talking. Um, we both have our own neurodiversities. You know, I can't shut up about my neurodiversity. And so we, I just, she's my favourite. And I also have another friend. Yeah, and this interview you did in the middle of the Exeter Library Cafe, don't you? So I wasn't sure when I walked past if it was just like a random person that you'd... <laughs> stumbled across and said, oh, I must podcast you while uh, while I'm here. But well, apparently it was prearranged. I, I do carry my mic wherever I go now. But yes, she was prearranged and she was so fantastic. And actually, we're going to hang out pretty soon in maybe two weeks. One of my non-London days. So here's Elizabeth telling us about the Good Robot Company, which is an AI firm. And they basically a firm that's created AI software to help stop companies from being biased yeah so to stop unconscious bias finn's the my my co-founder uh, he is the brilliant navigator of good robot company takes care of all the business side absolute whiz with that but still has like a really good technical understanding 
Um, so, you know, really good dynamic there. Um, and he worked internationally in real estate before doing his degree, actually, um, in like Dubai, which makes him have like such a versatile background. Um, I was in Dubai, actually. Really? Yeah. When was he there? Uh, I think 2017 sort of time, oh, 2018 time. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, so um, he, he's been he's been a, the driving force behind the initial idea. He came to me and with all these uh, questions that came up through his dissertation about AI bias and how it affects the world and why no one's like seemingly doing anything about it. And overnight, I was like, I'm sure that there's a different way to approach this than just like data drift and concept drift. There's something more. Um, inferred because bias is a socio-technical problem and I think a lot of companies or um, programmers when they go about addressing bias look at only the technical side rather than like systemic bias that comes in or the social bias um, and we were saying earlier about like perceptions and quantifying perceptions is incredibly difficult so you need a much more creative approach which is why my own system thinking background actually came in really useful when um, approaching uh, bias because it's a lot more encompassing so how do you how do you actually change something like systemic bias or, or mindset bias? How do you do that? Um, so when AI um, is deployed in testing environment, usually these biases are very controlled. Um, a chatbot's quite a good example. You don't have like people purposely trying to like mess up the chatbot and like maliciously interact with it. Um, or you know you have a toxicity monitor that's actually very like bias in itself in terms of inferencing and sensitivity towards um, certain agendas. So um, one way of, of going about countering that kind of systemic bias is actually something called counterfactual analysis, um, where you look at the what ifs and you apply it to different contexts uh, with the data. And from that, you can then see how it reacts in these contexts before the AI is actually deployed in that real world environment. It saves a lot of lawsuits. <laughs> yeah, but I mean... Does it, it seems counterproductive somehow, using a machine to remove that. Is, that. is there no way that we could do this in, like, conversation or in real life? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think um, education is a really important tool, education, communication, and just trying to, like, develop understanding and openness um, towards other people and their experiences. Um, and that sort of stems across from, from cultures, like conversations about disability. It's about taking apart the taboo and, um, you know, the barriers and entering this conversation, especially in places like England, where everyone sort of tends to like be very quiet about, you know, awkward topics. And it's like, actually, we need to just, you know, communicate and be open about um, starting discourse. And that does help. And it's the same with developing AI. I always say that it's great to like tackle the bias from technical perspective but they need to have stuff like transparency frameworks and you have like the policies in place and also feedback groups feedback groups like in person from both the users the stakeholders and also like future generations that can use these technologies and so i guess techno this technology is, is more for businesses to be uh, to complement their already existing attacks on bias yeah, definitely. So rather than trying to redo the current kind of statistical parity difference analysis that they already have, we wanted to add something that actually looked at different ways bias can be formed. For example, like confirmation bias. So the feedback loops within an AI when it's deployed and it's continuously running. As I said, with the chatbots, it might then take in the information that people are giving in 
when they interact and then using that and being sensitive to it for future decisions so isn't like creating a, a bad robot <laughs> as we say hence our name um that's a cute name by the way Thank i did you. think that i was like when <laughs> i saw it i was i imagined wally <laughs> Yeah, it's quite a long name. Like, a bit, but there's um, there's that two two syllable name fallacy that's often oh, yeah. in startups. You know, it has to be two syllables, and we're like, well, we've completely destroyed that with the good robot company. <laughs> no, I like it. I think it. Did you know Wally? That mm. I thought about that yeah, as soon as I. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so a big geek. Like, we were talking like Star Wars robots. And, like, yeah. <laughs> So what's different with the Good Robot Company compared to other AI bias technology? Because there's quite a lot out there, and even here in the Southwest. Um, what makes you guys different to them? Yeah, I think it's definitely the systems thinking approach. Um, I ran a masterclass on this uh, just this week, actually, that talked about how we how we break down the different areas. And as I mentioned before, like we see bias as like, the social technical issue it is. And I think, actually, because our program integrates both sides of that and we give the support of also helping companies with the mitigation side in the business realm and the legal realm not just the technical perspective it kind of sets us apart because we're more holistic in our approach which I think you need when you're deploying an entire system that affects people. So give me in, in theory what would happen if someone were to employ your technology what, what would happen? So we have our standardized bias detection which is currently being rolled out and this is basically a massive systems diagram set to deal with a lot of different components within AI and ML systems. We then look and run our programs based on counterfactual analysis and also something called strain testing, which is where we enter some chaos theory to prepare that system for the real world. Gets very interesting results when it comes to bias. And then you get a report back stating where the bias is uh, in like many different frequency maps and heat maps and with this label sensitivity based on um, the strain testing so you can actually understand which elements are specifically vulnerable and which elements are also very interdependent to perhaps having higher risk because they've for example dealing with personal data or they have limited c continuous monitoring frameworks if models are quite siloed and they're based on like decision spontaneity it can be quite what's difficult. decision spontaneity so it's where like the ai is um they're making its own decisions based off the uh, histories it has but beyond kind of what you set up the algorithm to do it often happens when either the model kind of d degrades a little bit or whether it advances it's very difficult to differentiate whether <laughs> what it is between without actually monitoring it so if you if it's siloed and it's just left alone because they're like oh it's deployed that's it now <laughs> they don't realize you've actually got to sort of you know continuously like enrich and and yeah um monitor these models like children basically <laughs> So once you start monitoring uh, the AI, what do you yeah. want out of it? Okay, so we have a program that actually interacts with it. Um, it changes elements in the environment. Um, we're trying to get the process, the design process for this, uh, currently protected more by IP. So I can sort of say a little bit about how it, it communicates with the program. But yeah, by changing the environment and the environment that the, the variables interact with the with their overall system and the data that you're trying to find bias with you can see a difference before and after the the measurements and modeling and then that difference is kind of like your real world strain of the model and possibilities and it's quite good when people are before they're employing features because then they can see sort of what propensity they actually have to employ those features mm. and also where the vulnerabilities might be mm. if they're trying to add add more 
scalability. Mm. And they're not addressing the bias, and that bias is going to scale. So, like a simulation of what's about to happen, and then they can sort that out before it actually happens. Yeah, and that's just one like aspect of bias that we focus on. But I, I think it's a quite a unique thing to us. Tell me a little bit more about biases and and how they're um, broken down. So we have the like taxonomy of bias um, that we often explore in the masterclass that we run. So starting with familiar biases, perhaps like sampling bias, so the way that the data is gathered and the implicit cognitive biases that go into that. When thinking about all these biases, we've tried to think what happens in a cognitive and social realm and how that translates to the technical interactions between the data and how that data looks and how the model interprets that. Um, so going through a couple of more of the biases, we have association bias. This is like the sensitivity um, between the implicit relationships that can affect decision making. Uh, for example, boys do programming is quite quite an association that's ingrained into a lot of hiring systems. Yeah, there's something quite systemic that then actually just reproduces itself when applied in a technical space. Mm. Data sourcing filters is quite a new one, but when you buy data in bulk, a lot of the time there'll be filters on this in some way or another, and often it's disregarded the way they're designed, but actually um, the data that's kept is done by a pattern matrix and it can reflect cognitive bias. Annotation bias is another one. This is like indirect assumptions, could be misclassifications, or for example, ghost data, not as spooky as it sounds. <laughs> um, so ghost data, it's like the assumptions that the AI makes because that data isn't there. So for example, at the University of Oxford ran a conference, they found that people protecting their human right to not give their personal information actually meant that they had a lower chance of being accepted by the hiring AI because of the assumptions made um, by the fact they didn't have any data to, to go off of. It's insane that because obviously, you know, someone trying to protect themselves ends up actually shooting themselves in the foot in, in, with regards to that. But what do you do actually to stop that from happening? Um, yeah, there's definitely a wider... Uh, ethical ethical issue there um, a lot of the time it's it's um, well it's doing techniques like strain testing so it's doing the what ifs what if people don't give their data ahead of time before it's deployed um, before it affects people's lives and um, I think if you do a thorough process of, of testing pre-deployment then you'll find that actually you won't be subjected to, to you know the potential lawsuits that could come from having a negative decision because someone chose to chose to keep that human right there's an overarching uh, ethical debate though as to what where really that line is with uh, your personal like right to know where that data goes and that flow flows goes but also the accessibility with explainable ai to actually track that <laughs> i find that incredibly interesting and it's definitely a field still developing in itself so moving on to other biases is confirmation bias so this can be not only from historical biases but also from the reward system that's set up the sensitivity to its own histories and also user interactions often with with ai that's open source deployed or deployed with users of, of especially probably younger ages the immediate response would be try and breaking it <laughs> um, we see that with a lot of like stuff on the internet like google's chatbot where it's had a huge amount of implicit bias especially when people sort of learn how the filtering system works that's 
part of the of the dangers of actually um, being quite transparent with the way that your system's filtered, is that people then like go off to, to abuse that. So understanding to what sensitivity, especially concentrations of that sensitivity that your system has to its historical biases is really useful and so important. Um, another one is prioritization bias. So this can be like the implicit impact of um, when your system's doing its own adaptive development. Um, framing biases when there's bias, uh, when the model is in a specific context or position. Prioritization bias is quite interesting because it, it overlaps that slightly, but it's also, for example, if there was less information or if you had to pick two candidates instead of 10, who gets prioritized in that? What we find fascinating is when developers don't intend to put a weighting system or a ranking system in the design of the AI or ML systems, and then it comes up with the ranking system itself. How does that happen? Usually it's through reinforcement learning or reward systems. So if you sort of go, yes, this was the right decision, this mm. was a better decision, then there, there's you know, assumptions built up within that system that if it continues to match these certain labels, it will also be a positive. Like and if you're hiring a designer and then yeah. you feel like they should, I don't know, have experience with Adobe in software, then every single time you say, yeah, glad they had Adobe software then they will only choose designers with Adobe software experience. Especially when it's more complex and you bring in like a seniority into that. And if you're hiring like higher stake roles and they all have Adobe, for example, compared to the lower stake ones, they might seem as more valuable than the than people that don't have that. Um, so it, it, it's, uh, it doesn't widen the pool, especially when you consider that a lot of recruitment data is based off people actually meeting people and could be on personality or the way they interact. And that's very hard to quantify the abstractions into, into black and white data. You're listening to the Southwest Tech Daily Podcast with Robert Hillier and Fayaza Khan. That was one of my favourite interviews to do because she was super, super fun. Fascinating from Elizabeth there. I can see why you hit it off, definitely. Um, now let's turn to Roger Osorio, heavily trailed already today, talking about his new book, The Journey to Reinvention. This is a goal I've had for over 10 years and I've had so many false starts along the way, um, but this time was different, this last time, and so now it's really cool to see what this project looks like now that I'm at this stage where the book is out, you know, and there's a like there are copies out there and people will be receiving theirs, you know, shortly. Um, but also like this distinction between writing a book and selling a book. Whoa, two different challenges altogether. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so the thing about reinvention, it's it's probably very familiar to, to startup founders and to, to tech founders, which is mainly who listen to our podcast. So what techniques from your book do you think would be most beneficial to the people who are listening? Yeah, so you know, right in section two of the book, one of the things that I cover, which was actually inspired by working with entrepreneurs. So I spent, uh, or I've spent the almost the last eight years working with an organization called Techstars Startup Weekend, which is actually where you and I met for the first time. And I have facilitated these three-day entrepreneurship boot camps where we have experienced and aspiring entrepreneurs come together to practice the skill of bringing ideas to life, you know, going from concept to creation. And so working with entrepreneurs from all over the world, I mean, a lot of the ideas that are in the book are actually inspired by what I've seen them do in order to launch their successful reinventions. For the most part, many of these people are the, you know, the working day jobs and then they just have this idea or they have a vision 
or they have a desire to change their life and they see entrepreneurship as an opportunity to do that. And then they go ahead and begin that process of reinvention. Startup Weekend, by the way, for them is one of their major steps, which is actually one of the strategies I share, which is engaging in, in new experiences that will really help you connect with others, um, learn new skills, and really practice and just experiment like what it is that you've got in your mind. And so I think that the book, The Journey to Reinvention, is a lot about the entrepreneurial journey as well. Everyone knows that, you know, Experiencing new things is, is an important thing to to move forward, to learn, etc. I think the, the issue that people have is taking that step. So how do you motivate yourself to take that step, to, to get out of your comfort zone and to do something new? Yeah, great question. So, you know, it's definitely not a lot of times I think we're told, just get out of your comfort zone and do that. And of course, easier said than done. And we know that. So one of the things I share in the book are four key strategies for actually setting the foundation for being able to take those kind of outside of your comfort zone experiments. Uh, the first step is talking to new people, making sure that you're connecting with new people, going to different events and just having conversations with people you normally don't. Share your ideas with them, listen to their ideas, give feedback, receive feedback as well. And as you start to hear their ideas or responses to your ideas, you're already starting to formulate your ideas at a different level. Your idea is now evolving. Um, what happens a lot though, and I've seen this with a lot of entrepreneurs, is that they have their idea and they keep it to themselves. And I get it, you're protective, it's your baby, you wanna bring this thing to life, but you're afraid that somebody else might take it from you before you can bring it to life. Especially if you don't feel that you have the requisite skills to bring an idea to life, you're even more protective which only sets you up for more failure or the likelihood that you won't bring that idea to life. And so connecting with new people is so incredibly important to doing that because as long as you're having those conversations, you're gonna to start to feel empowered. Also, imagine you're connecting with existing entrepreneurs, experienced entrepreneurs, people doing what you're trying to do, living the kind of life you wanna live. Well, now you're surrounding yourself by the kind of people who, who speak that language. This is what they do. And so I think that that's why that step is so important. When you're doing that regularly, you, you kind of draw courage from watching them do it. And you're like, oh my gosh, they do this all the time. And I hang out with them. I get coffee with them. We go get drinks or we go to like watch games together or whatever it is. If you, if you find it difficult to start those conversations, and I know you told a really good story about when you were a valet and you would just strike up conversations. What are your top tips for at networking events, for example? What are your top tips for just starting a conversation? So I'll, I'll address that first, and then I'm gonna give another strategy that might be a great way to ease into some of these. First thing I would say is when you go into a networking event, go in with three things you wanna share about whatever you're doing, whatever the idea is. Don't even worry, as long as it excites you, just be prepared to share those three points. And then two, come in with two or three go-to questions. Questions that you can ask anybody you run into and just like become a broken record and ask those same questions over and over to every single person you meet and let the conversation unfold the way it will. Some will take off, others won't. Others, some will like just kind of fall flat right away and you'll know and you'll walk away, hey, it was nice talking to you. And then you go to the next person or go get a drink at the bar. But whatever it is like, you know, just keep practicing those questions. Now, that said, 
easier said than done, of course, because if you're not comfortable going up to a stranger, it doesn't matter that you have questions prepared and you have your points prepared, you're still gonna be nervous. So what I recommend is actually going back to old friends, people you haven't been in touch with for several years, because old friends after many years become new friends. They've evolved, they've changed, they've grown, they've developed. They're not the same people you left off with like maybe three, four, five years ago. So start there, it's a warm lead. You already have some connection, so it's not like you're starting from nothing. And but it will feel very new because in the end, they're not the same people and neither are you. And so you'll have a conversation. You'll go in with the intention to share ideas and, and give feedback to theirs. And you'll feel like as if it was a brand new person. Oh, my God, that's such a good idea. Go to old friends. Yeah, because they will be different people. That is. And also, I guess you learn new things from them because they would have had all these different experiences and then share them with you and then... I mean, especially now with social media and all of these tools and all of these networking events and things that happen virtually and in person, we connect with so many people that we cannot reconnect with all the time, you know? And so time will pass. There are many people, the majority of the people in your network are people you haven't been in touch with for many years. And that's okay. That's an opportunity. That's an opportunity to reconnect with them, um, and then treat. And it'll be as if they were new to you, except they weren't. You already had that first introduction. It's it's not about just getting out of your comfort zone. It's also about I don't know motivating yourself to be a bit more open to the opportunities. Because I guess you you can't you can't get opportunity until you knock on its door. To mm-hmm. use a cliche. So is is this is this the way of of finding opportunities just by chatting? You might say oh, I'm starting up this coffee cart Mm -hmm. near this place. And then they might know how to get, uh, they might know someone in the council who'll be able to get you a pass so that you could do that or a license or whatever. And then it just moves on from there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Actually, this is one of the things that I hear from a lot of successful people who share their awesome stories of how their ideas began or how their venture or journey started. And one of the things you often hear is like, oh my gosh, and then so-and-so in my network like happened to know that person or so-and-so happened to be looking for, you know, somebody to work with or, you know, and all of these things just, it, it almost seems, and, and this is the downside of these stories sometimes, is that it seems like all of these things just fell into their lap and it was all like magical and amazing and well, I'm not experiencing magic and amazingness, so then I guess I'm screwed here. The thing is that it wasn't magic and it didn't just fall into their lap. It's that they were talking to people. They were connecting with people. And when you put, when you put um, the, the word out that you are working on something, people start to think about that when they think about you, when they hear something that sounds like it's connected, relevant, or helpful. And then they reach out to you out of nowhere and they say, hey, Roger, so I know you've been like doing this thing with the book, you know, uh, The Journey to Reinvention. Um, I just heard about like, you know, this new venue and they're looking for a speaker and oh my gosh, wouldn't that be awesome? And I'm like, yes, I would have never known that. I'm not connected to that community. I'm not connected to that market or whatever it is. And, but thanks to some me talking about what I do, and that person listening, I was lucky enough to have them think of me when the time was right. And this is what really, this is where, how the magic happens. This is kind of like maybe the behind the curtains magic part. It's not really magic. At the end of the day, it's because people are putting that stuff out there and you're creating like agents, people who represent you. And they're out there in their own worlds, finding opportunities and delivering them back to you. And it seems like magic later after the fact when we hear about the story and read about it in the paper or, you know, uh, hear the watch the video on it looks amazing. But no, the agents were out there working for some of these folks and eventually it comes back over time when the time is right or they find the right connection. 
That actually does sound a bit like magic. A little, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> so how do you actually reinvent yourself? And I mean, should everybody be doing this? Should everybody, you know, at a certain point in life go, you know what, sack off this job that I'm doing. I'm going to go do something else and be someone else. I'm just going to, I don't know, go teach in Ghana or something. Yeah, great question. And, and you know, something you said that definitely gets my attention. You said, should I, you know, just kind of maybe quit that job or go be somebody else? You know, one of the things that I learned about the journey to reinvention is that it has nothing to do with becoming someone else and it has everything to do with becoming who you really are. So you're actually moving closer to who That's you very really coach speak. Yeah, <laughs> of course it is. Well, you're talking to a coach, so this is what you get. But this is really like what it is. It's about becoming you. And each reinvention is a tweak or an adjustment along your life to get closer to who you really are and who you want to become. And so it, it's, it has everything to do with that and nothing to do with becoming someone else. Now, how to do it? Quitting your job isn't the only thing that you can do. In the book, The Journey to Reinvention, one of the things that I say is that quitting your job is, I think this is the title of one of the chapters actually, quitting your job is not the only thing you can quit. Because I want people to know that it's not just about quitting your job. Because right now we're in this great resignation, and at least in the US, and I don't know how it's affecting Europe. Uh, same here. So then it, a lot of people think that it's all about quitting. Quitting is becoming cool. Quitting is becoming glamorous. And that's fine if that's the right move for you and if it's the right time and if you've laid the groundwork and built the foundation for your next reinvention. And quitting obviously is going to be a natural step that must happen. However, not everyone has that opportunity. Not everyone is at that stage. And not everyone has maybe that um the the ability to do that just yet we have responsibilities we have our debts we have our families to take care of health care issues whatever of course depends on which country you're in but in the u.s health care debts and all those kinds of things are really important and if you don't have that covered you may not be able to quit even if you are in a situation that doesn't feel right but there are other ways to begin building that reinvention and laying the groundwork so going back to one of your questions at the beginning is how do you reinvent yourself one of the, or begin uh, creating that possibility? One of the other things, in addition to meeting with new people and connecting with new people or old friends, if you need a warm up, is to also explore uh, new passions. Really get involved with connecting with new potential interests. I call it dating interests because a lot of times people say, oh, you know, I don't like this thing because it didn't work out the first time. I picked up a golf club, I swung it, I really sucked. This is not my sport. I should probably play another sport that I'm usually good at. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about date golf for a little while. Try it out, just give it a chance, go on a few dates. Don't like just, you know, because it didn't work out on the first try, give up. And if you're looking for a way to kind of, maybe the, the, uh, the warm up way to this, go with a friend, go with someone who's already in love with golf. Someone who's hardcore dating golf already, like in a deep relationship with golf, because they're gonna make it way more fun for you and they're gonna help introduce you to golf in a way that normally you wouldn't if you just went by yourself to try to figure it out and you sucked at the same time. Because <laughs> um, it's hard, it's hard to go through that part. But, but it's really important that you um, test out new passions because in those different areas, even if they don't become the next job, the next reinvention, you learn things. You, you see models in different fields and different areas that might apply to your world, or you may actually find your next passion. And for me, that's how I found math, teaching math. Becoming a math educator started by, started by exploring this idea of a part-time job you know, tutoring math at a learning center after my day job. So like after I got home from the office, I'd go a few hours at the learning center, make a few extra bucks and or quid, uh, I guess here. And 
And I, I just started falling in love with this thing. I had no idea it was going to become something that it was going to become something I fell in love with. And then I developed a passion for it. And now all of a sudden I'm like, wow, I think I want to do something with it. And when the time was right and I had my plan put together, my financial plan, my healthcare plan, making sure that all those things were uh, in order. And, it does, and by in order, I don't mean I had it all paid or I had it all figured out. I meant like I restructured my debt, which actually cost me more down the road. But I saw that as the expense to that's the cost. Yes, that's that's the cost to living a life aligned with my values, passion and purpose. So I was able I, I was willing to do that. And I took care of my health care, found an alternative to like, you know, the corporate health insurance I had. Then I went and decided, all right, it's time to explore teaching math. And I became a math teacher for many years. I taught high school and middle school math. So you know, when you start testing and dating passions, this is how you start to create those opportunities because sometimes you don't know what it is that you want to do next. For people who, um, who are not convinced, why should they get your book? Yeah, for people who are not convinced, honestly, I, I, I was just thinking about this on the plane ride over here because a journalist sent me a bunch of questions to answer and I was thinking about this one. And I would say like it, for people who are not convinced, how can you wait another day to start living a life that's aligned with your values, passion, and purpose? How could you spend another day living a life that you know is not, where you're not pursuing success on your terms, where you're not doing what matters to you? You know, that for me is like, that's an emergency. That's that's a, in the US, 911. Is it 911 here in the UK? It's 999 here. But if you so call 911, you'd be fine. People will know. So 999, 911, all of these, you know, for me, that's a, that's a 999 situation. If you're not living that, you can't spend another day doing that. And so my book is an invitation to get onto the journey to reinvention. That's how I wrote it. I didn't write it as a how-to purely because I know that I could teach people how to do something, but that doesn't mean that they will because there's a whole process to just getting started with something. It's scary, it's uncomfortable, as we talked about, getting out of your comfort zone. And your career might be your comfort zone right now. In many ways, it creates a lot of comfort. So getting out of that is gonna be hard. So I know a big part of that is, how do I invite you to do this? How do I invite you to believe it is possible that you can live a different kind of life, that you can live a life that's more aligned with your values, passion, and purpose. And one of the things I talk about in the book, and I'm not going to give this one away here on the podcast, is how do you even get over the pay cut that you take when that happens sometimes? Not all the time. Sometimes you won't take a pay cut. But many times, I think at the beginning, you will for a little while until maybe you don't anymore, or it doesn't matter. And that's one of the things that I learned along the way is that you compensate for the pay cuts in like totally different ways. And I talk a lot about this in the book. And so there is an urgency here. I mean, you really can't afford to spend another day living a life that's not going after what you want and doing things that matter to you. Oh, Roger. Love, love, love talking to him. Love talking to Lizbeth. I'm so glad we are back doing the podcast after a couple of months off for the summer. It's just... It's just so good to be doing it again, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, no shortage of people to speak to, no shortage of interest. Um, it's almost like our kind of year begins, isn't it, in September, not January, because mm -hmm. things do slow down a bit for a couple of months. But yeah, off we go again. So thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe. Please follow me on LinkedIn and twitter and instagram just connect and you know come on the podcast we want to hear from you yeah absolutely we do and i'm sure we will thank you so much bye, bye. find us on twitter at sw tech daily come and join the conversation on linkedin southwest tech daily <laughs>